Okay, if you can turn again to John chapter 17. John chapter 17, Christ's high priestly prayer. And we're going to consider from verse 20 to verse 26. And the Lord Jesus is speaking, of course. If you've got a red letter Bible, you will see that it's the words of our divine man, our Lord Jesus Christ, or the one who is divine and a true man. He says, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through thy word that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, and that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me, and the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and has loved them as thou hast loved me. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundations of the world. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known thee that thou hast sent me. And I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. Just so far. When our study at last Lord's Day, we considered verses 17, 18, and 19, and we considered the very important doctrine of sanctification, or to be set apart, also, the means of sanctification, which being the truth, as the Lord Jesus says, sanctify them by thy truth, or we can say the word of God. And we said that the subject of sanctification is a deeply important one, because we are still in this world, and the world of sense, and yet at the same time, as the Lord Jesus says in verse 14, that we are not of this world as he is not of this world. Then our Lord speaks of those he would send, speaking, of course, in, this, in that particular verse, that, uh, the, directly to his disciples, those that would be the foundation of the Christian church, Christ being, of course, the chief cornerstone, according to Ephesians 2. But of course, every Christian is sent, not in what we would regard as the mission field as such, but in our daily lives, wherever the Lord has providentially placed us. As we heard this morning, nothing happens by accident. Therefore, this evening we come to the, what we would call the third section of our Lord's high priestly prayer, that is from verse 20 to verse 26, where our Lord begins to pray specifically for all believers. 
those present in his hearing and those future. Those who the Lord says shall believe. Not may or might be, but shall believe. And Christ, with his omniscient eye, looks over the expanse of the ages to come and knows those that are his, those given to him by the Father, as the Lord speaks of that in verse 2 and in verse 6. They are given to the Son because they belong to the Father, and that the Lord Jesus keeps them, verses 9 and 10. So this evening we come to the most profound verses we could say in the whole of this prayer of the Lord Christ. And last Lord's Day I did mention that I was betwixt and between of how to consider these verses. Whether to continue verse by verse as we have done so far or to consider them as a unit within the doctrine or the wider doctrine of our spiritual union and communion with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. More specifically, we could say, our union and communion with Christ as the Church. Now, there is no doubt that the subject of spiritual union is probably and possibly the most important, the most profound, and yet the most glorious. The most profound of any that is set forth in the sacred scriptures. But why is that? Well, the great temptation most of us face is to believe that very little has happened to us through grace. And we still stumble and fall short of the high calling which is ours in Christ. But the scriptures encourage us to hold a different perspective by enlarging our understanding what God has done for us and has begun to accomplish in us. And as the Lord Jesus prays in this third portion of John 17, this is at the very heart of the Lord Jesus Christ's prayer here in verse 20 through 26. For this doctrine of our union and communion with Christ lies at the very heart of our Christian life and is intimately related to all the other doctrines that we treasure. It is the link joining them all together into one harmonious whole. And the truth to which the New Testament constantly returns to as Christians, we are united, it says that we are united to Christ. And union with Christ is frequently described as our being in Christ. 
Paul describes those to whom he is writing in his epistles as saints, that they are people set apart by God and for God. The doctrine of sanctification, as we said, but he also invariably addresses them as those who are in Christ or in Christ Jesus. Anton, could I ask you to turn to 1 Corinthians 1 and read verse 2? Um, Antoinette, could I ask you to read Ephesians 1 verse 1? Uh, Janine, could I ask you to turn to Philippians 1 verse 1? And Caressa, could I ask you to turn to Colossians 1 and verse 2, please? 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Called to be saints in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1, verse 1. an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. And then Philippians 1 verse 1. Janine, please. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, the bishops and deacons. In Christ Jesus. And Colossians 1, verse 2, please. The saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Those that are in Christ Jesus. And the parallel to this is the other emphasis that Christ, Christ Himself is in the believer. And uh, Victor, could I ask you to turn to Romans 8 and read verse 10, please? Romans 8, verse 10. And then Paul, could I ask you to turn to Galatians 2, verse 20, please? Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If Christ is in you. So we, the Bible speaks of us being in Christ and Christ being in us. Galatians 2 verse 20, Paul, please. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Amen. So these expressions indicate the closeness or the inseparable bond between the Lord Jesus and his people. This is one of the great mysteries which has been revealed in the gospel. And Trish, could I ask you to turn to Colossians 1 
and read verse 27, please. Colossians 1, verse 27. To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The great mysteries is that Christ is in you. It is something which God makes known to us only through revelation. So union with Christ is the foundation, the foundation of all our spiritual experience and all of our spiritual blessings. Because these are given to us in Christ and only those who are in Christ ever experience them. Therefore we must ask the question, how do we even begin to try to comprehend such a union? Well, first of all, let us consider three principal unions that are revealed in the Scriptures. This might give us some understanding and comprehension. Three principal unions which are revealed in the Scriptures, which are the chief mysteries, we could say, and the non-negotiables that form the foundation of our most holy faith. First, of course, we have the union of three divine persons in one Godhead. Having distinct personalities, being co-eternal and co-glorious, yet of the same essence and constituting one Jehovah. The second union is the union of the divine and human. The nature of Christ, the two natures of Christ in one person. Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, being God and man. And then the third mystical union, as some theologians speak of it, is that the union of church, of the church to Christ. He being the head they, the members, constituting, as I just said, one mystical body. Now, though we cannot form an exact idea of any of these unions in our imaginations, because of the depth of such mysteries is beyond our comprehension, yet it is our bounden duty to receive them and to believe them, because they are revealed clearly revealed in the scriptures. And they are the necessary foundations for all the other great doctrines of biblical truth. And as we have just said or pointed out, that the scriptures have much to say upon this union which exists between Christ and his people. And Dennis, could I ask you to turn to John chapter 14 and read verse 20, please? And Irene, if I could ask you to turn to Ephesians 5 and read verses 30 through 32, please. John 14, 20. 
At that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Very clear there, isn't it? Same uh, language as uh, the scriptures that we've just read in John 17. Irene, uh, Ephesians 5, verse 30 uh, 30 through 32, please. For we we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. This is a profound mystery. Because Paul says he is speaking about Christ and his church, that they become one. Being in Christ and Christ and the believer, as Paul says, is a great mystery. How can we comprehend such a union? That there is a union at all between God the Son and worms of the earth. For how immeasurable is the distance between the creator and the creature? Between deity and mortal man. The very same distance by nature that Abraham speaks to the rich man in hell when he said, There is a great gulf fixed that those which would pass from you to us or from us to you cannot. That's the kind of gulf that separates the creator from the creature. Then how wonderful beyond words. How wonderful beyond words that sinful wretches should be made one with him before whom the seraphim veil their faces and cry, holy, holy, holy. The union of Christ and his people is an amazing subject. For it is an eternal union. It is a union made known and revealed and enjoyed in time. It is a union which will openly and manifestly be declared in all of its glory and its perfection at the last day. It is a grace union. It is also a glory union. For it is the foundation of all the gracious actings of Christ towards his church in time. And all the glory he will put on his church in eternity. And the communication unto his people at the latter day. Um, Yakumin, could I ask you to turn to Second Thessalonians chapter one and read verses ten through twelve, please. Now, this portion of scripture in our Bible studies on the Wednesday evening we've read on a number of occasions, and this baffles me. But Yakumin, if I could uh, ask you. To read verses 10 through 12, please. 
When he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe, it is our testimony among the world who believe. Therefore, we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith's power. That the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. When he shall come, verse 10, to be glorified in his sense, to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. That's amazing. That's amazing. Verse 9. Who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And the vital importance of this doctrine of the union of the church to Christ is no more seen than in the place it occupies in this high priestly prayer of Christ. In verses 20 and 21, where the Lord says, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Our Lord here began his prayer for the whole body of his people by speaking of the union which they had with him and his father. In the Son and in the Father. And he spends the next verses which follow by expressing the blessings which follow as the fruits of this grace union. And in the language of verse 20, we are not to conceive that Christ began to pray for a union to be brought about or obtained in time only. That is true. For he clearly says, those who shall believe, he's speaking of the future. But the Lord Jesus is not speaking of a union to be established. He's speaking of a, of a union which is already established from all eternity. Rather, the Lord here begins to pray that his people will be blessed with a clear knowledge of it. So that we might enjoy all the benefits of this truth in our hearts and our souls. In verse 22, our Lord says, And the glory which thou gavest me I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. 
Therefore, this subject of the union between himself and the elect of the Father was one that was close to the heart of the Lord Jesus. For it was forever set before him, for he did speak of it again and again and again. And he knew that the knowledge of it was of great value to his people. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. And this union about which he prayed is such that the Father and the Son dwell in us and we in them. It is such that the elect are so joined unto the Father and to the Son that it is such the highest union of which the elect are capable. Because Christ Jesus, here, in this priestly prayer, likens this union to the indissoluble union of the Godhead. I in them, and thou in me, and they, that they may be made perfect in one. And so important is this truth. That the Lord Jesus says here in this prayer. That this union will be displayed to the whole world. That this union of Christ and his church will be vindicated before the, the whole world. How that will happen, I have no idea. But that's what the Lord says. But we have a great variety of blessings that are set before us in the gospel. Salvation is an unspeakable one, yet not so great as our union to the person of Christ. For if we had not been united to Christ, he could not be our Savior. It was because his people stand eternally related to him that he was graciously pleased to undertake for them. Therefore, the union with Christ is the foundation of all spiritual blessings. Varigis, could I ask you to turn to Ephesians 1 and read verse 3, please? Ephesians 1 and verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And of course we know that we were chosen in Christ. Before that, Paul speaks of being chosen in Christ before the foundations of the world. So the Apostle Paul says, if there had been no connection with him, there can be no regeneration, no justification, no sanctification, 
and no glorification. Now these blessings of salvation are entirely dependent upon our union with him. I am the vine, you are the branches, and the branches are dependent on the source. And so the union between Christ and his church is so real, so vital, so intimate, that the Father has never viewed the one apart from the other. And there is such an indissoluble union or an indissoluble oneness between the Redeemer and the redeemed. And such an absolute identification of interest between them that the Father of mercies never saw them apart. He never saw Christ as Christ, the Anointed One, without seeing his mystical body. He never, the Father, never saw the church apart from its head. Therefore, the Holy Spirit is delighted to emphasize this wonderful and glorious fact in many scriptures. In connection with the church's Christ's birth, we are told in Hebrews 2, verse 14, and Chiba, could I ask you to read that one, please? Hebrews 2, verse 14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the sea, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. And further we are told in Colossians 2 verse 11 that his actual circumcision was our mystical uh, circumcision. At his baptism, Christ was numbered with the transgressors. Hence, speaking as the representative of the entire election of, the election of grace, he said, thus become us, us, not simply me, to fulfill O righteousness. Also we are told that when our Savior was nailed to the tree, Paul says our, our old man was crucified with him. Romans 6 and verse 6. When he died on the tree at Calvary, we are told that if one died for all, then all died. Second Corinthians 5 and verse 14. When he rose, we were quickened together with him. Ephesians 2 and verse 5. And also that he did not rise again as a single and private person, but as the head of the church. And um, Lawrence, could I ask you to read Colossians 3? And verse 1, please. Colossians 3 and verse 1. 
If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. We've been raised with Christ. And that is not all. In Ephesians 2 and verse 6 we are told, And has raised us up together with him, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And when Christ appears in glory, it will not be alone. For the Apostle Paul says, Then shall you also appear with him in glory. Colossians 3 and verse 4. And as one hymn writer said, One in the tomb, and one when he rose. One when he triumphed o'er his falls. One when in heaven he took his seat, while seraphs sang, O hell's defeat. With him, their head, they stand or fall. Their life, their surety, and their all. So we, we may ask a question. What is the nature of this union with Christ? How do we define it and describe it? Well, first of all and foremost, it is supernatural. Being altogether beyond the powers of the creature to effect. It is holy of the wisdom and the grace and the power of God. This union of Christ and his church is the greatest mystery. That persons, as we've spoke about earlier, so distant and so divided should be made one. It is so profound that no finite intelligence can fully comprehend it. And we would have known nothing about it if God had not revealed it to us, to us in his word. And then, even then, it must be revealed to us in his word, by his spirit. Yet even now, we discern it through a glass darkly. Secondly, not only a supernatural union, it is also a federal union. A federal union. And this lies at the very heart of our union with Christ. Because it accounts for our legal responsibility before the divine law. A federal comes from the Latin word feudus, meaning a treaty or covenant. And what is being emphasized here is that God has established a relationship between Christ and his people, which may be thought of as a covenant. And this covenant by theologians is spoken of as the covenant of grace, which was established between God the Father and Christ the Son as mediator. 
And within this covenantal agreement, Christ acted as the head of the church. Not only in union with him as a person to person, but, an, but also an actual oneness together with him in the sight of the divine law. And this oneness has been variously designated by different theologians as a covenant union. Some speak of a legal union. Others mention a representative union or, as we've said, a federal union. All of which signify much of the same thing. But the central part here in this covenant of grace is that Christ and his people are one in divine election. He the head and they the members of this mystical body. Therefore this covenant of grace or eternal covenant some speak of was made with Christ not as a single person, but as a common head, being the representative of the elect who were given to him in a federal way or a covenant way. So what he promised in the covenant, he promised for them and on their account. And what he promised with this covenantal arrangement he accomplished on their behalf. For in verse 26 at the end of John 17, our Lord Jesus says, I have declared unto them thy name and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them and I in them. There's that Distinctive, distinguishing covenant love. But also, within this covenantal agreement, he becomes answerable for them before the justice of God. And it was stipulated that on the account of his satisfaction to the divine law and to its demands, they received the pardon of their sins. This is Paul's argument in Romans chapter 5, 12 through 21. For Paul saw the parallel to Christ and his people in their relationship to the first Adam. And the Apostle Paul says there in Romans 5 that Christ appeared as the Adam in reverse, undoing what the first Adam did regaining what Adam lost, restoring to man what was forfeited by the first Adam. And so Paul says that in this covenantal union, that through Christ's obedience, and on the basis of this covenantal relationship between Christ and his people, grace abounds over sin. Justification becomes a reality and believers reign in life in Christ. 
And all of this, the Apostle Paul says, because of one man's act of righteousness. But that is possible only if there is this objective union between Christ and his people. For this federal union is effected and made effective outside of ourselves and only in Christ. So we have a supernatural union. We have a federal union. And that leads us to our third point of the nature of this union with Christ. That it is obviously a faith union. Some refer to it as a saving union and others a vital union. Union with Christ is a faith union. For faith not only rests upon Christ, but according to the language of the New Testament, faith brings us into Christ. On some 50 occasions in the New Testament, we read of believers being into him, or in them, or on him. Believing in him, or believing on him. And so all spiritual blessings are ours in Christ, but only when we get into Christ will they be of any practical benefit to us. How then do we get into Christ? Well, the scriptures reply, or through or by faith, faith alone. But this is where our popular preaching and teaching today is sometimes shallow and, of course, outright dangerous. For a supernatural object requires a supernatural faith. And this, the natural man is utterly incapable of putting forth. Therefore, he must have imparted to him a spiritual life. Or he cannot savingly believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. For this faith, or this kind of faith, is not merely a natural act of the mind, assenting to the truth of the gospel only, as it assents to any other truth upon rely on a reliable testimony. And this is where much of the Gospel today is shallow and downright dangerous. But it is a supernatural act which is facing or towards the Lord of glory. And the effect is produced by the power and the spirit of grace. Therefore, it is not a subjective experience which tells us to look inward. Rather, it is something which lifts us up and out of ourselves and draws us into the glorious liberty of the children of God.
As we said, he is the vine and we are the branches. And the chief need of the branch or the shoot is to be grafted into the vine and to depend entirely upon the vine's nourishment. And that by nature we are incapable of accomplishing. So we have a supernatural union, we have a federal union, we have a faith union. But that leads us to our fourth point, which seems obvious, but that our union with Christ is a spiritual union, which essentially means that our union with the Lord of glory is created by the agency of the Holy Spirit. He, the Holy Spirit, carries us into Christ. And Paul indicates the closeness of this union in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 17. And Dennis, could I just read that one again, please? First Corinthians 6, verse 17. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. And there are other areas of this nature of our union with Christ. This union with Christ is also an extensive union. It is a union of life. It is what they refer to as a, theologians refer to as a carnal or a flesh union. And ultimately, it is a glory union in eternity. Let us just close with reading again verses 21 through 26. That they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee. That they also may be one in us. That the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and thou in me that they may be made perfect in one. That the world may know that thou hast sent me. And has loved them as thou hast loved me. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me, be with me where I am. That they may behold my glory. Which thou hast given me. For thou lovest me before the foundations of the world. O righteous Father. The world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known thee, that thou hast sent me. And I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. Just so far. Any questions? Any thoughts? Or is it so profound that we 
just have to Yes. Please. You know, the statement about the statement about Christ being in us and us in Christ is a statement that he repeats and it's a very incomprehensible thought, but it's also a frightening thought and a thought that fills me with a greater loathing of myself. I explain why. Um, if he is in us, which he is, and we in him, Second Peter one talks about the fact that we are partakers of the divine nature. Amen. Which means that in this sin-cursed mind and body, I also am a partaker of the divine nature of Christ. How can I persist in this sin? while I have the divine nature of Christ. And when he says we are partakers of the divine nature, he doesn't say of what. So one can just assume that we are partakers in Christ of his entire divine nature. Mm. That is a thought too uh, incomprehensible, frightening, and causes one to rethink um, your abhorrence of things that God hates. That was the first sort of observation. And then secondly, when he talks about in verse 21, that they may all be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. And the reason for that, and he repeats that later, is that the world may believe that you sent me. Again, a reminder to us that our call to unity, both in the brethren, because of the union with Christ and the Father and the Spirit, is crucial to our evangel. Mm. It is critical to our spreading the gospel message, because it is a command. And he mm. says so. I mean, and John gives the reason for him writing this book, which is later on, where he says, I have written these things that you may know they might believe in Christ and the Father and have eternal life. So again, it's a call to us in um, Christianity, uh, a clarion call to unity, because it is through that unity that the world may also know Christ. And again, it should cause us to evaluate our petty little differences and disunity that we breathe out of and one can go on. Thank you, Moise. Which is, and that's what the devil seeks to undermine, isn't it? Yeah. The unity of the church. Yeah. yeah. But of course, we see that the devil seeks to bring in false, <laughs> false doctrine. Yeah. We see that in a, a number of the later epistles, especially in Jude, yeah. where we see the warning, where, and Paul in Galatians says, if any man preaches any other gospel, let him be anathema. And he repeats that three times. So we, we have to uh, know what we believe and defend the faith. And uh, yes, we, there are certain, certain things that we can differ on. Uh, but uh, the main 
doctrines we cannot. Any other thoughts? Well, everybody's quiet this evening. Was it helpful? What I, what I, this is the, I, I've completed the study, I told Brian this morning, because if we did carry on with this union and communion, I said to him we would I'd probably spend the, the next, uh, the rest of this year on, on the doctrine, on the study, and I thought that I would just bring it together this evening and then we can have someone else a teaching on a Sunday evening for a period. I trust that it's been helpful. I trust that it's been building up and exhorting Lord's people. And uh, I trust that it's been good. Yeah, it has been, Joe. Thank you. And just to appreciate you and thank you for the yeah. effort that you put into preparing to teach as well. Yeah, thank you for that. It's all for the Lord. For his glory and for his honor. And I struggle with these doctrines and I struggle with, especially with this one, I try to get my head around it. I've read a lot on it and studied it and sometimes you tend to go off onto a, you know, you, you've got to be brought back because you tend to go off onto a tangent, it's possible, and go a little bit too far. But this oneness with Christ is... How could I die with Christ and be rose with Christ and be seated in the heavens in Christ? Right now. Yeah. Not, not future. It's a reality. Right. We haven't experienced it yet. As we hear the now and the not yet. But it's true. It's reality. We are in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we were in Christ in eternity. Before the foundations of the world, the scripture says. And now that's something is, that is beyond my comprehension. A finite mind cannot even begin to comprehend it. Shall we pray? Father, truly you are good to your people. And Lord, we acknowledge that we just do not live to your glory as we should. We are apathetic many times. And as I say on a number of occasions, we are of the earth, earthy. And to be able to grasp these things, you must teach us by your Spirit. And so, Lord, we thank you for this time together. May you bless your people this week. We, I look forward to meeting with the ladies on Wednesday evening in our study. We, and the rest of the evening, midweek studies, we commend them to you. And we thank you. Keep us safe, we pray. Not just physically, but spiritually. For we ask in the name of our Lord Jesus, and for his glory, and for his honor. Amen.